Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the field of the Monulia was planted a garden, which burst forth and blossomed every day. It was sown with lilies, but the white and the red which budded and flowered were flesh and blood and weapons and the slosh of splattered brains. Spirits and souls, sinners and saved, the freshly killed replenished hell and paradise. We are joined by renowned historian Tom Holland... As always this week, talking about the Cathars. And Tom, that was from an anonymous troubadour, I think, talking about the Albigensian Crusade. Quoted by Mark Gregory Peck in his book, A Most Holy War, which is um, a, a brilliant account of the subject of today's episode, Dominic. Um, yes. The Albigensian Crusade and its aftermath. So to recap, for those people who are coming to us fresh, uh, this is the third of um, a mighty trilogy. The first episode was about <laughs> albino monks. Was about yes, a man from Doctor Who. Um, the, <laughs> the creation of the Da Vinci Code conspiracy theory, the idea of the Cathars as this secret society, part of this world, including the Templars and the Priory of Sion, that protected the Merovingian bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. In the second episode, Tom, you talked us through the reality. The historical reality, what historians now think about the Cathars. Most, m- not all, I think, but most. And their role as a sort of resistance was a holdout against the great revolution of the papacy within Christendom um, in what, the 11th, 12th centuries, yeah. I suppose. And now we're into the action. We <laughs> because are. now there's going to be an awful lot of spattered brains in this story. And, and it's our first crusade on the show. So the Crusades oh. is a kind of obvious topic, isn't it? That we we haven't actually touched till now. So we are we're we're plunging in with um you know in many ways the darkest I think right because the most one sided I suppose of the Crusades. Do you think? I think because it looks forward to some of the darkest episodes in modern history. Okay, um, and perhaps talk about that at the end. The way in which you know it's a very modern war. Right. Yeah, but we we'll m- maybe talk about that towards the end of the show. So we ended the last episode on a, on a real cliffhanger. So that was the beginning of 1208. Raymond of Toulouse, who's been 
going back and forth. You know, he's accusing people of being heretics, but he's also been trying to resist attempts to kind of cleanse his territory of heresy. He's had this unsuccessful meeting with a papal emissary, who then unfortunately has been murdered by a knight the very <laughs> yes. next day. Yeah. And so, Tom, what happens next? So Innocent III, the great pope, perhaps the most powerful pope who, who has ever ruled, he's furious. And yeah. he blames Raymond and sees that Raymond the Count of Toulouse is in associate, you know, he's, he's in the clutches of, of all these heretics that he thinks are teeming everywhere in the region. So he, he wants the heresy cleaned up. And so he, he does what he's been doing for several years and he turns to the King of France, um, Philip Augustus, Philippe II, uh, who is distracted. He's facing invasion by, by John. Uh, the King of England, uh, he's got the Holy Roman Emperor as well, and he, he can't be bothered. He doesn't want to get distracted with all this, this nonsense down in the South. And so he refuses. And Innocent, he's had enough. If the King won't go, then Innocent is going to conjure up his own army. And he does it in the way that popes have been conjuring up armies to fight against the enemies of Christ since the end of the 11th century, which is to summon them to an armed pilgrimage. Now, we know these armed pilgrimages as crusades, but this is a word that doesn't start to be used until this period. Right. And it derives from the idea that you sign yourself with the cross. So cruci signati. And preachers go out uh, throughout the winter of 1208 and 1209, summoning men from across, not just France, but the whole of Christendom to take up the cross. So a preacher says, the cross that is fixed to your coats with a soft thread was fixed to Christ's flesh with iron nails. In other words, that by putting on the cross, in some way they are imitating Christ. And that this armed pilgrimage offers warriors the chance to live as Christ lived. So that the warfare, the slaughter that they will bring is sanctified. It's holy. It's doing God's purpose and it's emulating Christ. And Peg in his book describes this as an absolutely fateful moment, that it's the merging, he says, of a century or more of Latin Christian thought on heresy and holy war. So, you know, these are traditions, the idea of, of holy war, the idea that there are, there are heretics everywhere. These are traditions that, that have kind of been emerged from the great papal revolution of the 11th century, and they've been moving in parallel throughout the 12th century. Yeah. And now under Innocent III, they're being joined. And, you know, this is an incredibly fateful moment. Um, and Innocent sees it as potentially apocalyptic, that if heresy is not destroyed, then, you know, it is more dangerous than, than say, the Saracens, because it's a sickness within the body of Christendom itself. And is this, Tom, the first great example of this idea of fighting a holy war against the enemy within? I mean, that's something we're so familiar with now. Yes. You know, the, the yes. real enemies are within your house you know they're not the muslims or whoever it might be yeah they are other christians yeah. exactly and so that that is why the heretics are so dangerous is that you know if you allow them to live then you might become a, a heretic it's kind of like right. a zombie plague yes you know if you allow the zombies to spread then you yourself will become a zombie the real enemies are not the capitalists they're the trotskyites or whatever that's what it foreshadows isn't it yeah i suppose and in the episode we did on the nazis we were talking about how anti-semites see the Jews as a kind of disease. Yes. And that's pretty much what Innocent III is seeing heretics as. And he feels that unless the heretics are destroyed, then their infection will spread and corrupt the entire body of Christendom. And everything that the church exists to do to bring the Christian people to God is in the balance. So in that sense, the stakes couldn't be higher. It is uh, a war with cosmic resonance. 
So this is the language that is being used. This is the background to this kind of drumbeat of warriors from across Europe starting to mass and head down in the early months of 1209 towards the south of, of France. Right. Meanwhile, you can imagine that Raymond VI, the Count of Toulouse, who's kind of in the eye of the storm, he spends all this period absolutely crapping himself. A technical term, Tom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but accurate. And so he is sending endless kind of messages to Rome, kind of saying, it's fine, you know, I'll do whatever you want, please stop it. Um, and, um, as the, uh, as the army start to kind of mass in, uh, in 1209, basically he, he completely surrenders. And it's all very Game of Thrones because he, he's an excommunicate. And so to be welcomed back into the fold of the church, he's made to walk naked oh, right. through the streets of Saint-Gilles where he'd yeah. been negotiating with the, the papal emissary who then gets killed. So in a way, he's kind of accepting responsibility for the murder of that emissary, even though almost certainly, you know, he had nothing to do with it. And so he's led through the streets. Uh, he goes into the, the great church, the shrine of Saint-Gilles. He swears repentance. He is flogged by uh, the papal envoy. He's given a kind of coarse robe like Christ wore. So Christ was scourged, given a coarse robe. And then he, he is accepted back into the fold of the church. And shortly afterwards, in a brilliant move, um, Raymond announces that he is joining the crusade. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So Raymond is the sort of poacher turned gamekeeper par excellence, but he's turning on his own people there, is he, Tom? Yeah. But he's, you know, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got the, what is effectively, the largest army that's ever been seen, yeah. you know, assembled in France on your doorstep. They're coming for you. I think, I think it's understandable. I mean, it's not <laughs> heroic, but it's understandable. And actually, even before, uh, Raymond does his, you know, walk of shame, um, the killing has actually already begun. So you have a band of crusaders who, um, turn out of a place called, uh, Cassinay, which is, kind of um just south of the Dordogne so on the kind of the northern flank of this region yeah and uh Cassini gets captured by the by the crusaders and they round up people who they condemn as heretics and they they burn them and there's a poem written about this whole crusade and it has the lines the many fair women thrown into the flames for they refused to recant however much they were begged to do so and what what would they be recanting though so so this is the thing is that as the crusaders come with their desire to target heretics, so the people who are being condemned of heresy come to see the, the, the crusaders as an enemy and therefore to hold on to their own positions all the more dogmatically. And, you know, they are ready to die for it rather than to submit. But specifically what? In other words, there I am. I'm in Casanoi. I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to imagine myself a butcher and I'm being dragged or I'm going to imagine myself a fair maiden. I'm being dragged to the pyre. Um, I'm sure listeners will enjoy this image. I'm being dragged to the pyre. There I am. And then people say, recant or we will burn you or whatever. Yeah. What could I recant? What do I believe? So that is a really interesting question. I mean, we, we talked about aspects of it in the previous episode. This idea that the, the representatives of the kind of the papal establishment are outsiders, are aliens, are the heretics themselves, that the, the structures that govern the rhythms of Christian life in this region are seen by those who cleave to them as much holier, much more authentically Christian than that of the Crusaders. And I think there's indisputably over the course of this war, you know, as wars always do, it entrenches a sense of division. But you're right that um, the readiness of people in the region to suffer martyrdom is really, really striking. And I think that perhaps we should look at that 
later on when we we look at, at what happens when the war is over and the okay. degree to which this heresy if you want to call that uh, survives and endures and transforms because one of the aspects of this that is horrifying and meant to be horrifying is that the burning of heretics is consciously offered up as a kind of holocaust um uh, burnt offerings to the lord you know they are it, this is meant to be seen as something that is kind of simultaneously horrible and joyous and that i think is is what is so unsettling and shocking about the whole process and was clearly uh, unsettling to contemporaries as well right and that 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 burning in um in Kasanoi is merely the precursor for the most famous and notorious uh, holocaust of the lot which is the great town of Béziers, which is one of the two cities that are, are under the sovereignty of the Vicomte of Béziers and Carcassonne. Listeners from the previous episode will remember that, you know, these are the, the great rivals of the Counts of Toulouse. Um, and the, the Vicomte of Béziers and Carcassonne in this period is a guy called Raymond Roger, and he is both the nephew and the rival of Raymond the Count of Toulouse. So they kind of, you know, they're related, but they hate each other in the best right. traditions of medieval. <laughs> medieval lords and this is why raymond VI, who has you know repented recanted been welcomed back into the fold of the church and become a crusader when he approaches arnold amalrek the abbot of um Cito, who is uh serving as the papal representative with with this huge army um he turns up and he says i think you should go to Bézier. <laughs> so in other words target the city of his greatest rival yes and and raymond roger who's only 24 and hasn't really been keeping track of what's been going on, is suddenly informed that the greatest Christian army ever, as it's being described, is, you know, is coming towards him. He summons all the people of Bézier to a meeting and he says, guys, you're on your own. And then, then he scrams and heads off and kind of hunkers down in Carcassonne. And the people in Bézier think, oh God. And, and the whole story is tragic and comic in equal measure because the, the crusading army Beds camps down in front of the, the walls of Bézier. Bézier has very, very strong fortifications. The people in Bézier think they're absolutely fine. Nothing, you know, they're not going to be stormed. And kind of various lads, they go out onto the bridge and they start kind of jeering at the crusaders and right. saying, you, you know, you're never going to get us and kind of, you know, running out, sneering at them and then running back in. And there's a whole gang of lads who are accompanying the crusaders. So they are described as ribald boys but I suppose, you know, if you're in Liverpool, you might call them scallies, I guess. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. You know, they're, yeah. they're kind of lads who, who are camp followers, but you know, they've got a bit of, they fancy a fight. They yeah. fancy a fight. Um, and basically they're not having this stuff that, you know, well, the lads in Bezier. So they follow it and they get into a punch up and the punch up then develops and they part, they start piling in. And before they know it, they've captured Bezier and all the knights kind of look up <laughs> and go, Oh, and so, and so they pile in and. The slaughter proceeds. So Peg in, in A Most Holy War has, I mean, the orb slowly darkened as rivulets of gore spilled down the streets and washed off the bridge. Sounds like one of my children's books, Tom. It, it, yes, absolutely. And um, inevitably, the city is put to the torch because yeah. the idea of the Holocaust is very important. It has to be offered up as a burnt offering. And people in Bézier have, have, um, have gathered in the great church in Bézier. Uh, and we have a figure that 7,000 are incinerated there. So there's um, there's, a, there's a book by uh, a, a scholar called Lawrence Marvin, which is very much focused not on the kind of the religious dimension of it, but the, the military. Yeah. And he points out that um, this figure couldn't possibly be true. 
because as many observers, including myself, have concluded, the church is simply not large enough to accommodate that many people. Oh. So, so that's a, yeah. You know, that's a, that's an apt point. He's a, but, he's a, he's a fun hating historian, I think is the <laughs> but, expression. But, but, but the point is that the incineration encourages these kind of stories because it's designed to be absolutely shocking. You know, right. this is yeah. a burnt offering to the Lord and the, the news of it reverberates across Christendom. It's an absolutely pointed display of divine vengeance. That's, that's what it's meant to be. And, um, a decade after it, Perhaps the most famous uh, saying that emerges from the Albigensian Crusade is attributed to Arnold Amalric, who is the the, the papal envoy. And this, when the, the crusade is bursting into Bézier and they can't distinguish between heretics and non-heretics. And one of them asks Amalric, well, you know, what do we do? How, how can we tell them apart? And the abbot replies, kill them. Truly God will know his enemy. And whether he says that or not, it gets taken up and repeated because it articulates something very, very important, that the the need to scour the region of heresy is more important than allowing the innocent to survive. So better 10 innocent men are killed yeah. than one guilty man go free, basically. And so Amoric writes to the Pope and he says that in Bézier, where you know thousands of people have been slaughtered or incinerated, he says, divine vengeance raged marvellously. Crikey. That's um, not quite turning the other cheek, is it? <laughs> no, but you know, but but it is seen as the Crusaders feel that they are imitating Christ in doing this. That this is what Christ wants. That this is what He would do. So it's very, it's kind of very sanguinary and weird and 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 terrifying. And understandably, everyone in Carcassonne, yeah, you know, I mean, they're again to use the technical term, crapping themselves. Um, and the Crusaders put Carcassonne under siege for three weeks. Um, after this period, Raymond Roger decides I've had enough and he, he opens negotiations. Inhabitants are allowed to leave wearing only their shirts. And so they do so, all of them. Do they get to wear trousers? Nope, just shirts, apparently. Great. No trousers. The people of this region are notorious for the, uh, the bright yellow tightness of their leggings. So perhaps they're wearing those. I don't know. <laughs> ungodly, Tom. Very ungodly. <laughs> but poor old Raymond Roger himself is taken captive, despite the fact that he'd been given a promise of safe passage. He's chained up and he dies three months later. So he is out of the way. And so the question now is, um, who is going to become the new lord of, of Bézier and Carcassonne? And there are kind of various uh, lords from the north of France who are, who've turned up and they all think, actually, you know, this is a hiding for nothing because the Crusaders are, you know, their, their vow is to fight for 40 days and the 40 days are up. And so the likelihood is, is that large numbers are going to go away. So whoever is left in, in Bézier and Carcassonne is going to be surrounded by a very hostile population. Yeah. And not have many men. So they're all a bit nervous. And so they say no. But then one, one of the Northern Lords says that he will do it. And he is a man in his mid forties. He's from the vicinity of Paris. Uh, he's also the Earl of Leicester. Mm. Uh, and he is a man called Simon de Montford. To British listeners, Simon de Montford, his son, you know, he's, he's the guy who's associated with the, the founding of parliament. The father of democracy. The father Tom. of democracy. But Simon de Montford, his dad is a man who is, very, very devout, possessed of a, a sense of his absolute holiness, very, very brilliant, superb soldier, and unbelievably brutal. Yeah. And when the vast mass of the Crusaders leave after the capture of Carcassonne, he's left with perhaps a hundred knights, a few more. I mean, not, you know, very, very small number. And he's got Carcassonne, which is a huge center. He's got this kind of smoldering remains of Bézier. Um, how's he going to hold it? And what he does is year in, year out, 
Crusaders will come and join him over the course of the summer. And then in the winter, they'll go. And the kind of ebb and flow of de Montfort's success and the ability of his opponents to recapture strongholds that he's captured just keeps on going on. And so more and more of the region gets torched, gets burnt, fields get destroyed, towns get demolished, strongholds get toppled. And it's absolutely hideous. And it goes on year after year after year. And so the cycle of war develops particular characteristics that make this crusade kind of notorious across Christendom. So the first is the tradition of the Holocaust continues. So in 1209, the first fort that he captures, a place called Castres, he makes a point of watching the first two people to be burnt. Right. You know, he's, he's making a statement. And then the following year, in July 1210, um, Simon and his men capture a place called Minerve. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yes, it's a very, very impregnable site. It's kind of one of those craggy, rocky places that tourists, you know, immediately kind of conjures up a sense of the, the, the savagery and the, and the yeah, romance of yeah. the time. But I mean, there's very little romance actually about its story because it falls after six weeks. Um, Arnold Amalric turns up just as the, the um, surrender is being negotiated. And because he's a man of God, he feels obliged to um, offer everybody inside the, the town um, a pardon. And one of the crusaders says, well, what's all this about? We want to burn them. And Amalric says, don't worry, uh, I, I can guarantee you that it'll be fine because loads of them will not accept the pardon. And so 140 of the, the people of Minerve are burned. And it is reported that they were so hardened in their wickedness that they hurled themselves into the flames of their own accord. So again, this idea of the heretics willingly embracing the flame. And you get a kind of detail that's almost kind of reminiscent of the episode that we did on the Holocaust, that afterwards the corpses have to be buried in mud because the stench of charred flesh is so revolting that crusaders who've just arrived just keep retching and, and vomiting 1211 a place called lavar is captured 400 heretics are burned alive and again this is done with kind of a sense of of joy so it's cum ingenti gaudio the phrase is the latin phrase with great joy and at lavar the lady of of the city who is um, not herself a heretic but is accused of having been favorable to the heretics she's thrown down a well and the crusaders hurl rocks onto her until she's crushed you've you've used the word heretics a lot to describe the people who are being executed or the people who are being accused and, and is it fair to say this is irrespective of their heretics is just the label that is being pinned on them because they are the local people of the long dock who are on the wrong side. No, I think they are people who, who do hold opinions that would oh, be defined. they do hold opinions, right. I think so, yes. And we, we'll talk about exactly how these opinions may have evolved over the course of, of, of the, of the crusade yeah. in the second half when we look at, at what happens in the aftermath of the war. But just to continue with the kind of the sense of the, of the horrors of it, you have, as well as Holocaust, you have calculated atrocities. So, you know, garrisons will be captured, De Montfort will cut off, will mutilate them, cut off the noses, you know, gouge out the eyes. And it's happening the other way around as well. So if, I don't know, monks have been captured, they'll be murdered. Uh, De Montfort's knights, if they get captured, there's a kind of a, a horrible story about them. Um, you know, they have their eyes gouged out and they're sent out into the winter to stumble their way back to Carcassonne. And occasionally there are battles and campaigns in the open. And one of them is against the King of Aragon, who is coming to try and get rid of Simon de Montfort and, and lay claim to this region himself. And he gets killed in a great battle at a place called Muray. So... This sense of slaughter and horror is kind of escalating, but by and large, people are uh, across Christendom are seeing it as a kind of salutary demonstration of the power of Christ. So 
Pegg begins his his book, A Most Holy War, with this incredible description of one of the um, the first ghosts to appear from purgatory. It's a, a small boy who appears to a small girl. Um, and he, and he says, uh, he, he assures this girl that nothing has pleased God so much as the death and extermination of the Albigensians. And the Albigensians is the word that's being used for the heretics of, of the region, the Albigeois. And so it just goes on and on like this for kind of 20 years, endless slaughter, endless burning of fields until finally in 1218, you get this kind of deadlock between Simon de Montfort and Raymond VI, who is holed up in Toulouse. Simon wants to capture Toulouse and he feels this will yeah. end the war. And Simon vows that he will capture Toulouse within a week. And the following day, the ladies and, and the small girls of Toulouse are busy uh, working a kind of siege engine, you know, because it's all hands to the deck. They fire yeah. it and it crashes into uh, Simon's head and he drops dead. Oh, that's a nice ending. I'm glad that he's dead, Tom. I didn't. I didn't care for him. I have to no, say. No, he's he's a terrifying man. And with him gone, everything kind of falls to pieces because his son Amory is who inherits that. You know, Simon Simon de Montfort, the, the younger Simon, inherits his earldom of Leicester, which is why yeah. he's able to, you know, be the founder of English democracy. <laughs> um, but Amory turns out to be absolutely useless, and he can't hold it together. And so, the son of Philip II, the King of France, Louis. He is made of much sterner stuff. He's much more of a, an enthusiast for, for crusade than Philip. Right. And so in 1219, he does go down to this region and he, he conducts a siege of Toulouse. It's just about to fall. Then the 40 days are up. And so Louis feels that he's done his duty. And so he goes back. And so Toulouse survives and Raymond VI survives. And Raymond then dies in 1222. And his son, inevitably called Raymond, wants <laughs> to, to, to bury him in, uh, a priory in Toulouse, but he can't because um, his dad is still excommunicated. And so the, the coffin with Raymond's body in it has to be left outside the priory church where it is left for 200 years. 200 years? <laughs> yes. And it, it kind of, you know, it gets, eat, you know, the, his body gets eaten by rats, the coffin rots away and it all just completely vanishes. So it's, I mean, it's a kind of another dimension of the horrible. Yeah. So many Gothic details in this story. Yes. So Raymond VII succeeds him. Uh, he's, he's very kind of vigorous and able, but he knows really that he's up against it because by this point, Philip II's son, Louis, has become Louis VIII. And he really, really is determined to kind of annex the whole region and bring it under directly under French rule. So 1224, Louis VIII accepts the lands that Amory de Montfort had inherited from his father, and he takes them over. So that these are now kind of property of the French crown. Right. And two years after that, in 1226, he takes the cross. He leads a crusade, the largest crusade since 1209, and he invades the Languedoc. And again, it looks as though it's all up for for Raymond. But uh, Louis VIII falls ill and he is taken back in a litter to Paris and most people attribute it to dysentery. But there there is um one courtier thinks that it's because Louis the um the eighth is is very pious, that he hasn't been having enough sex. And so he introduces a courtesan into the uh you know the the tent where where Louis is is wasting away and um Louis is said to have covered his private parts and and told told the prostitute, Madam, it shall not be. And he dies shortly afterwards. But to be fair, if he was wasting away, he's probably <laughs> well, not quite, in the mood. <laughs> quite, exactly. So um twelve twenty eight, Raymond Seventh finally kind of sues for peace. You know, he says, I I I give up. And twelve twenty nine, peace treaty is signed in Paris, and this brings the war officially 
to an end. And by its terms, Raymond remains the Count of Toulouse, but he loses a, a great eastern chunk of his territory, which goes to the French crown. The right. French crown has also grabbed Bézier Carcassonne. He, they keep that. Raymond's daughter, who's nine years old, a little girl called Joanne, is tributed to Louis's younger brother, a guy called Alphonse. And the stipulation is, is that their children will be the heirs of, of Raymond. So they will inherit the, the lands of Toulouse. But the problem is, is that they don't have children. And so when Alphonse and Joanne both die in 1271, Toulouse as well passes to the French crown. And so it becomes part of the, the fabric of the kingdom of yeah. France. And the other term is that Raymond will continue to hunt out the heretics. And so even though the war has ended, the war against heresy hasn't. And I think that, you know, we should take a break and definitely when we come back, look at, at basically, you know, it's a question that you've, you've been asking over again, and I'm sure the listeners have been pondering it as well is, you know, you know, if there is no heresy or no major heresy, why are they hurling themselves into the flames and perhaps talk about that? Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. With a sudden upwelling of reverence, Robert Langdon fell to his knees. For a moment, he thought he heard Tom Holland's voice, (laughs) the wisdom of the ages, whispering up from the chasms of the earth. That's what it feels like for me, Tom, listening to you talk about the Cathars. Those are, of course, the final lines of the Da Vinci Code, one of the great texts of 2003, of the 21st century, perhaps even of all time said nobody ever well, i'm sure didn't dan, i'm sure dan brown must have said that i think he, i'm sure yeah, if I mean, he's, not, dan, he's not an immodest man is he he might well say that other books angels and demons inferno <laughs> yeah. are, are superior yeah, too, yeah. as he's honed his craft yeah so tom we started with the da vinci code uh we've actually found our way into i think a much stranger and more interesting story which is the story of the albigensian crusade completely agree it's an extraordinary fascinating story so we ended with the end of the war the Counts of Toulouse have become belittled. I mean, they have less territory. The French crown has got more territory. So you could look at this and say, well, this is just basically a land grab. But for the fact that you ended by saying that the Counts of Toulouse were told they had to continue fighting heresy and rooting out heresy, which suggests that it's not just a fig leaf. There's something very substantial going on there. And how is that that war on heresy that this was supposed to be all about? What's been going on with that? So, I mean, right the way through, I've been saying that, that by the lights of the, of the Roman church, there are lots of people in this region who, who do count as, as heretics. And the particular focus is this notion that there are people called uh, boni homines, the good men, the good women, who can attain a holiness that is equal to or greater than that of priests. And this is absolute anathema to the, the Roman church. The division between laity and priests is fundamental to it, both because they have a very elevated sense of the role of the priesthood, but also because it's the priests and the clerics and the scholars who are responsible for instructing the vast mass of the Christian people in Christian doctrine. And so therefore, people who resist that are to be condemned. But for people in you know, the Albigeois in, in this, in this region that is being targeted by the crusade do not see themselves as heretics. They see the invaders as heretics. And that's not just because they are defending beliefs that they hold. It's also that those beliefs structure their entire way of life. So we were saying how you become a good man or a good woman because you practice courtesy. You, you, you display good manners. And, and this courtesy and this, this sense of good manners is important because life in this region is so tough. People are scrabbling over so much. And so if you tell people that, you know, good men or good women are heretics, then in a sense, you're knocking away the props that sustain not just people's relationship with God, which is obviously incredibly important to them, yeah. but also their ability to interact with their fellow human beings. And I think that 
We talked about how the Cathars in the 21st century have a kind of very positive image that they're new age. Kate Moss's yeah. book Labyrinth casts them as, as feminists, this idea that there were female priests when the Catholic Church obviously did not allow women and still doesn't allow women to become priests. And this idea that the, the Cathars had female priests derives from the notion that there were good women as well as good men. But I think that when you, when you look more closely at who is allowed to become a good woman, you see the way in which the understanding of this, this institution, this idea that there are people who are of both sex who are capable of attaining a, a particular kind of closeness to God, closeness to Christ, the way that it actually has a kind of a social role. Because you can become a good woman if you're a girl before puberty. Yeah. And you can become a good woman again if you are a widow, you know, if you're a matron, if your, your childbearing years are over. But in between, you know, the moment you, you hit puberty as a girl, you're married off. And the reason for that is that this is a society in which virginity and female chastity, like everything else, fields, orchards, vineyards or whatever, has to be tightly controlled because the competition is so ferocious. So actually, it's the very opposite of a feminist paradise. Yeah. And so there is an absolute chasm of incomprehension between the Crusaders and the people who they are attacking. And I think that people are are willing to die because they are standing up not only for their very, very devoutly held understanding of God and Christ and their faith, but also because that understanding of their faith is interwoven in their whole way of life. So, so R.A. Moore, the great historian of, of this Christian revolution, and specifically, uh, you know, he, he wrote this, The War on Heresy about this, this whole process. He makes a really intriguing parallel with the uh, witchcraft panic in the 17th century. Yeah. And so he, he writes, the yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension between Occitania and, say, the people of, of uh, the Midi and outsiders makes nonsense of the natural questions of how many heretics there were and what proportion of the population supported them. To ask these questions is rather like asking how many witches there were in Europe on the eve of the great witch craze. These are not labels where you can divide people into sheep and right. goats and say, here's the, the list of witches, because right. it was so culturally conditioned and accusations are reflecting so many different factors. Absolutely. But also what is happening, and again, this is where the parallel with the kind of the, the sudden kind of upsurge of anxiety about witches is, is so interesting, that the backdrop to the Albigensian crusade is a desire to define heresy much more tightly. So Innocent III, the great pope who, who launched the crusade in 1215, he holds another council at the Lateran, so the fourth Lateran council. And, you know, it's a confession of faith. It's about institutionalizing measures to improve the governance of the church, a better education of the clergy, better education of the laity. Um, this is when the obligation is imposed on the laity to confess to a priest at least once every year. So it's when the practice of confession is introduced. It also starts to target not just heretics, but also Jews and Muslims who, if they're living in Christian lands, are obliged to wear separate clothing so that the divisions between Christians, heretics, Jews, Muslims are being made absolutely specific. And Moore says that, um, like all sweeping and visionary measures of administrative reform, the implementation of the degrees would entail vastly increased responsibilities and opportunities for the administrators themselves. Lateran the fourth was a charter for the clericalization of society. So it's an expression of the fear that the educated, the scholarly, 
the clerical, the academic, you might say, have for the rustic and the backward and the uneducated. Oh, my word, Tom, this is sort of every institution needs to have its own sensitivity consultants. The idea that a revolution, uh, an intellectual or cultural revolution, needs administrators and bureaucrats and that that opens up all sorts of opportunities. Yeah. That'll be familiar to anybody who's read about Stalinism or yeah. any great revolution. And so then the question is, well, you know, you were asking, how how is it that this kind of polarized sense that the heretics themselves come to have that, that persuades them to hurl themselves into the fire? How does that kind of sharpen over the course of the um, of the war and its aftermath? And the Cistercian, so um, Amalric, who is the Cistercian abbot, the Cistercians are, are kind of intellectual shock troops for most of this period. And they are constructing this ever kind of more totalizing sense of there being this heretic church full of the echoes of ancient heresies. And so this is really sharpening this idea that, you know, these heretics are, are, are part of a kind of ancient continuum. So this is when all the stuff about dualism starts to be written up. You know, this hadn't been mentioned before the war. Oh, how fascinating. So the Manichaeanism. So the Manichaeum is, is, is being written in. Um, this is where you start to get the first mentions that they believe that Mary Magdalene was Christ's concubine. And they put that in presumably because it's so shocking. But, but also because it's an ancient heresy. Right. So that they're, they're reading it up in their ancient accounts and putting it in. But before this point, there's no, people aren't talking about this being an, an issue. No. Fascinating. So this is something that the Cistercians are starting to construct. But also they are, you know, they're, they're not just making it up because they're also speaking to the heretics whom they're opposing. And, and they report to the heretics that the heretics say that the Roman church is a den of thieves and the harlot spoken of in the book of Revelation. And that has the kind of the ring of truth because the idea that the Roman church is the whore of Babylon is a standard trope. Yeah for all kinds of heretics right the way into the Protestant Reformation. Um, this is combined with the destruction, not just of the, the beliefs of the good men and the good women, but their whole way of life. Everything that has given structure and meaning to their life is being eradicated. And so by the end of the war, the few good men and good women who, who survive are, you know, they're refugees. They're hiding in woods, hiding in cellars, looking for refuge wherever they can find it. And, their attempt to kind of maintain the, the traditions and the rituals that had previously structured their life, it's kind of almost pathetic. You know, they're, they're trying to keep alive something that is plainly destroyed. It's kind of, kind of tragic expression of nostalgia for a way of life that has entirely gone. And they do, you know, they do find strongholds. So Montségur, which we've talked about throughout this series, you know, that's the last of the strongholds. Yeah, famously. Yeah, yeah. and they, they, you know, great number get burnt. It's the last great holocaust. And I think that by that point, what is interesting is that many of the heretics seem to have internalized the accusations leveled against them by the by, by their enemies and kind of come to believe them. Oh, that's interesting. So in other words, those accusations probably had a tiny, tiny grain of... I don't think they had any grain of truth. I mean, lots of them had no grain of truth at all. You don't think they had any grain of truth? But that people have started playing the part. Well, so so there, there, there are some documents, again, and this is quite kind of Da Vinci Code and Holy Blood and Holy Grail. There are some documents that were found in the 17th century that claim to have been written by Cathars, heretics, whatever you want to call them, in the, uh, the, the, the aftermath of the crusade that do talk about dualism. And so there's, uh, there's much debate among historians about whether these are authentic or whether they are uh, Protestant fabrications. But... I think both Moore and Pegg think that they are authentic and they both argue that these are expressions of the way in which 
you know, the, the, the heretics have been so shattered, so destroyed, all the kind of underpinnings of everything that they believed, you know, for generations have been destroyed, that in a sense, they're trying to hold on to a sense of their difference by, by kind of basically, you know, they've got Stockholm syndrome, they're, they're agreeing with what their accusers are saying. And that takes us on to how, you know, it's not just a kind of military campaign that is being fought in the wake of the, uh, of, uh, of the crusade to kind of snuff out the last outposts of this. You also have the figures of inquisitors and it's not the inquisition right that's a 16th century phenomenon but it's it's inquisitors and these inquisitors are again absolutely an expression of this kind of intellectual revolution that is running concurrently with the broader institutional revolution in this period because what the inquisitors are doing is buying into um the rediscovery of the text of Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, whose works had been found in, in Toledo when that was conquered from the, the Saracens in the 11th century and brought from Constantinople. And by 1200, all his works had been translated into Latin. And what Aristotle offers is an emphasis on reason. So that, in other words, the inquisitors, rather than relying on kind of ordeals, so the Monty Python stereotype that you kind of duck them or yes. you know, ordeals by combat, all that kind of thing. They're saying, no, Aristotle shows us how we can use reason to penetrate to the nature of heresy, to examine it. And the obligation is enshrined both by the Fourth Lateran Council, but also by kind of various institutions that move into this region to try and, and crush the heresy, that the obligation is laid on to question and to to interrogate and to obtain evidence and to evaluate it. And Aristotle is the great model for this. Now, Dominic, you'll be pleased to know that the guy who takes the lead in this yeah. is a man who shares your name, Dominic. Good man. Uh, Dominic Canis, the, the hound of the Lord. Dominic, that's what people call me something. They call me the Hound of Dacre. <laughs> well, so so this uh, this previous Dominic, uh, he's a Spaniard, Dominic de Guthman. Yeah. He'd taken a, a big lead before the crusade in touring the region, combating heretics. He's still doing it throughout the crusade. So there's this um, <laughs> story uh, that, that uh, reported by Peg. Yeah. But, um, you know, he goes to a town that's been sacked by the crusaders and there's a survivor there. Dominic is preaching, trying to persuade the heretics to convert. And one of the survivors suddenly gets attacked by a demonic cat that oh. leaps up and hurls itself and kind of, you know, savages him. Um, and this is taken as a sign that the man is a heretic. And so he gets burnt. So this is the, the world in which Dominic is operating. Dominic is a, is a flatulent, is he, Tom? I'm sorry to say. He does. Yes, so he, he whips himself three times every night, once for himself, once for sinners, and once for penitents in purgatory. You know, the key thing is that he is motivated by compassion for the heretics. Listeners may sound, think this is, this is insane to say this. He's clearly a psychopath. I don't think he is. So it was said of him that God had given him a special grace to weep for sinners, for the wretched and the afflicted. He is really, really keen to redeem the heretics from Satan to bring them to God as he sees it, to bring them right. to Christ. And so he, to do this, he establishes um, an order of brothers, of fratres in Latin, which comes to be the order, first order of friars. Francis of Assisi has also established uh, an order of, of friars at the same time. And the point of the friars for Dominic is that they can provide a kind, you know, they, they are rivals to the good men. So he knows that the, the heretics he wants to convert admire the good men. 
as models of asceticism, of good behavior, people who are kind of not complicit in the institutional frameworks of the church. And so he establishes the friars as something that could perhaps kind of appeal right. to the heretics. So they, they have no property. Um, they live by begging and they're not like monks they, because they, they're not retreating from the world. They're out in the world kind of preaching. And it's these friars, the Dominicans who basically pick up the, the teachings of Aristotle and use them to interrogate and educate and recover the heretics for the church. And this kind of dual approach throughout the 13th century into the 14th century of smoking out heretic strongholds and inquisitors kind of in a loving God, you know, you know, they see themselves as doing this for, for love. I will have you whipped and burned out of love. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, we, we're so kind of hostile to the whole idea of it, but for, for inquisitors, then they don't want to see heretics burnt. If a heretic is burnt, then it's failure. Yeah. It's like how I feel when I write a bad review. I don't enjoy doing it, but I'm doing it for the writer's own good. <laughs> but, the, you know, but, and listeners may say, well, this is, this is insane. But I suppose, again, you know, to, to, to update it, maybe it's people who are trying to persuade people not to be racist, going out there to persuade people not to be racist. Yeah. And you feel, you know, you feel compassion for, for racists. You want to redeem them. You want to. <laughs> I don't know how many people would be convinced by this analogy. <laughs> I, I think it's a very precise analogy. And I think it's the best way to, yeah. you know, not just instinctively kind of despise the Dominicans as bigots, because I, I think it's much more complicated than that. But, but that whole thing that, that obviously, for, you know, I said for, for, for lots of people since the Middle Ages, this is a terrible story. And, you, might, you know, it kind of highlights why I think the whole idea of the Cathars has been so popular is that yeah. it kind of, you know, it reinforces the conceit of Catholics that the Catholic Church was in possession of the truth and that there were enemies of the Catholic Church. And to that extent, the crusade was justified. And likewise to Protestants or to Voltaire or, you know, yeah. right the way into the kind of the present age, new age people, whatever. It kind of demonstrates that, that religion is a terrible thing or whatever. I wanted to ask a quick question. How much does our romanticization of the Cathars, our invention of the Cathars, if you like, the Cathars were, as it were, invented in the Middle Ages, but then our reinvention of them. How much does that owe to Protestantism? The Protestants wanted to see the Catholic Church as repressive and, and, and burning people, and they also wanted to believe that there had always been a resistance. Well, I think it's really telling that I, I mentioned Charles Schmitt, the French scholar who in the mid-19th century writes the book, which has identifies these heretics as Cathars, Yeah, from which the, you know, the, the sense of them as, inverted commas, Cathars derives. I think that's absolutely true so there's a really I, I mean i think there's a really interesting parallel here with um with what happens in the wake of the french revolution and the french revolution in in so many ways is although it's repudiating institutional christianity and specifically the catholic church it's so imbued with christian assumptions and exactly like the, the medieval church the roman church it wants to wash the whole world clean of all kinds of sins and horrors uh, and, uh, and evils and it sees that those who are opposing them as being evil and the representative figures in the French revolutionary wars who embody this are the royalists of the Vendée, which is oh, the yes. region of France that is very, very, you know, it, it's basically, it's the same kind of region where 
the, the Great Crusade had been fought against heresy. Yeah, in the West, in the West Coast, Vendée. Yeah. And in, in, um, uh, 1794, the leader of the revolutionary armies that are going to attack the, the counter-revolutionaries in the Vendée, you know, they're sweeping in and there's this problem about how do you identify revolutionaries and how do you identify counter-revolutionaries? And the general says to his men, spare with your bayonets all the inhabitants you encounter along the way. I know there may be a few patriots in the reason. It matters not. We must sacrifice all. And that, of course, is very, very like. Yeah. God will know his own. God will know his own. Yeah. I think it unsettles any idea we might have that the Enlightenment or the revolution, the French Revolution, is somehow less murderous, less sanguinary, less oppressive than the medieval church, is that in the Vendée, you have no equivalent of the Dominicans. The Dominicans are consciously trying to apply a scalpel. You know, they want to kill as few people as possible in the cause of, of um, healing this diseased flesh. Right. Whereas the, um, the French revolutionaries have no time for that because they feel that that they're on the right side of history and that those who are (laughs) on the wrong side of history must be condemned to perdition. Um, So, uh, and that I think is why the story of the Albigensian crusade is unsettling because it's not just about how people in the middle ages were barbarous and savage and cruel. It's about us as well. Yeah. You know, it's anachronistic to talk about progressives in the middle ages, but if there were progressives, in the medieval context, it would be, you know, the Roman church because they have a sense, you know, that it is their ambition to cleanse, to purify, to uplift, to educate the vast mass of the ignorant and bring them into the light. And that essentially has always been, you know, that's the mission of the Protestants. It's the mission of the French revolutionaries. It's the mission of progressives today. So I think that that is why the story is so powerful and so unsettling because, because it's not just about bloodlines of Christ. But it's also not about something that can be parked and sneered at as some example of medieval superstition and backwardness, because we are the heirs of those crusaders. We're not the heirs of the of the Cathars. Crikey. What a what an a richly interesting and strange story, Tom. That was a that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for that. That was that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. That's I, I knew nothing about the Cathars really before we started. And I, I have to say I've learned an enormous amount. But what I'm gonna do now is I'm going to return to my reading of Dan Brown's wonderful novel, The Da Vinci Code. Now, if you listened from the very beginning, from the first episode, you will know that we left it hanging with that moment when the curator, renowned curator Jacques Saunier, was lying under a painting with an albino monk breathing down his neck. And Tom, I know you know what happens next, but um, for those... I can't re- actually remember. But... <laughs> You said it was one of the great reading experiences of your life. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's what I remember you saying. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I've moved on. I can't actually remember the plot. Doesn't he get? He gets kind of put in a pentangle or something, doesn't he? Uh, yes. Winston, oh, no, he gets like like um, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. He's trapped in the grand gallery of the Louvre, and all I will say is, wincing in pain, he summoned all of his faculties and strength. The desperate task before him, he knew, would require every remaining second of his life. That's how I feel about this podcast. Goodbye, everybody. It's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from 48-year-old man, (laughs) Dominic Sandbrook. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. 
rest is history pod dot com. That's rest is history pod dot com. Rest is history pod dot com.